at chapter 6. I've enjoyed being with you folks this week, and uh, I like the country, and this area is definitely country. And you're stuck out in the middle of a cornfield. This is my kind of place. And so uh, I feel right at home, and it's a joy to be with your pastor. I enjoy his company as well. And uh, we swapped stories, and uh, we enjoyed ourselves today with these other pastors. And by the way, you know, a year seems like a long way off, but you know, if you start praying now for that meeting, it's amazing what God can do in this place. Yes. I mean, you, you, you have no idea. I, I love, uh, I think it's Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. God can do more than you pray for because you may not know how to pray, but God does expect us to pray. Until we pray, there's nothing we can do until we pray. And if we do anything before we pray, we've done nothing until we pray. That sounds like a play on words, but that's how important it is. For us to try to serve God without praying is to say we can do this thing of church without Him, and we can get it done. In fact, that kind of fits into my message tonight because you have a prophet here who's a great prophet, but he's really not surrendered. Isn't it easy to get in a routine of knowing how to do church, do our everything we're supposed to do? Even the preacher, to preach, I've got thousands of things I could preach. I wouldn't have to crack a book, uh, a book again to preach. I've got it. But my big problem is knowing what do the people I'm getting ready to preach to need. That's the problem. And so I have to pray. All right? I may know the message, but is God going to get in it, involved in it? And so tonight we're going to look at someone who was knocking in time as a prophet and really was not surrendered. And our big problem with world evangelization in all kinds of ministry and church is surrendered people. Making sure. And there's a, there, there is something uh, that helps us to be surrendered. I want you to see the holiness of God in relationship to surrender. You hear what I'm saying? Our view of God. Uh, the holiness of God in relationship to our surrender has everything to do with it. Would you stand with me as we read these nine verses? In the year that King Uzziah died, hold on to that because why would he mention the death of this king if it wasn't important? Why didn't he say, in this year of our Lord? But he mentions the death of a king. It's important to, to Isaiah's surrender. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain, that's two, he covered his face. And with twain, he covered his feet. With twain, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Quite a scene. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember a king died in verse 1? He addresses the Lord as a king, and he sees him on the throne. That's very, very significant. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched my lips, 
thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sins purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Here am I, Lord, send me. We use that all the time as a reference for people called to the mission field. And it is a call to any kind of service, but especially we're talking about a mission, and this mission was to the Jewish people. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you, Lord, that uh, many could be here tonight because of we know the, the climate they face with all the rain and the flooding. And we just pray, dear Lord, that you would uh, still our hearts and help us to realize that your holiness and our view of you has everything to do with whether we're really surrendered and, Lord, really whether we're ready to be used of you. And I pray tonight, dear Lord, that we might be surrendered to you in the area of world evangelization as well as our own sanctification. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. I believe this episode in Isaiah's life reveals how easy it is for a child of God to be involved in ministry but not be surrendered. He was definitely involved. The main ingredient that shook Isaiah out of his lethargic state of serving was a fresh glimpse of God's holiness. He got a fresh glimpse. In fact, it may have been the first time he really saw God in all of his glory. We do not know. He had just pronounced, if you wonder whether he was functioning as a prophet, he had just pronounced six woes on the nation of Israel because of their sin. Verse 5 of chapter 6, verse 8, verse 11, verse 18, verse 20, verse 21, verse 22, addressing particular sins. And the word woe, folks, he wasn't trying to stop a horse. It was judgment, woe, judgment, judgment because of this sin. Six times. You see, he was knocking in time as a prophet. Yet he was not totally surrendered for what God had called him to do. And I believe that probably is true of a lot of believers. Knocking in time as a Christian, saved, going to heaven, but really not surrendered to the Lord. The missionary call has not changed. The same steps are still necessary for God's people as the Lord sends them with the gospel. Matthew 9, 38. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers. Can I ask you a question? Why did Jesus stand there and look at Jerusalem and see how that they were as sheep having no shepherd and say, uh, the laborers are few. The harvest is plenty. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest he'll send forth laborers. Why would he make that statement if your prayers for laborers was not a part of God's plan? Why would he even mention, why would he say, well, hey, I'm going to call him, I'm going to call him, I'm going to call him. Why, why would he say for you and I? You know, this thing of faith, uh, there's two sides to it. We can do nothing without him. But God has left certain things to prayer, and if we do not pray, it's not going to come to pass. Now, it will come to pass because he'll use somebody else to pray. But if you're going to be a part of that, you're going to have to pray. 
There's some things he's left to prayer. Why? Because God is honored by his people trusting him. And folks, if you think that you're going to move forward in your missions program without prayer, you're not. If you think that you're going to be successful in giving and giving the amount that God wants and he knows he can trust you with without praying. And listen, if you don't do anything this week up through Sunday before you decide what you're going to do for world evangelization personally, if you pray and say, Lord, I'm open to what you want me to do, you know what you can trust me with. And that's why I never suggest to people what they ought to give. I don't know where you are, but I, God does. And I'll tell you what, if you'll ask him, he'll put it on your heart. It's funny how I have, in, I'm in a lot of conferences, and uh, I'll, I'll have men come up to me and say, you know, my wife and I pray separately, and we come up with the same figure. That's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's really interesting. And uh, aren't we lucky? It's not luck, folks. Ask that you may receive, that your joy may be full. That means complete. Yes. Complete. Complete joy. And uh, the, the joy of this world is, a, fa- is, a, is a, a, a thing that comes and goes. But Jesus said, my joy no man takes from you. No man can take it from you. And so the missions program is nothing without surrendered people. Like Isaiah, our surrender is closely tied to our view of God's holiness. Isaiah was distracted. And God moved the distraction and allowed him to witness a true demonstration of God's holiness. God's lesson on holiness that leads to surrender goes like this. Number one, removal of the king. Removal of the king. You say, would God kill a king to get a prophet surrendered? Well, he gave his son to die that sinners like you and I might have everlasting life. Why wouldn't he take out a king? Especially if that king did something wrong, though he was a good king. You see, Isaiah was distracted by King Uzziah's success and security blanket that he provided. And when he, looked, when he walked into the temple, he was looking at everything down here, and all of a sudden he looked up and saw the real king on the throne, and his train filled the temple. That's interesting. And that's what we do. We come into church, and we have an expectation, and we're looking down here, and we're looking at each other, and we're looking at the preacher, and nothing wrong with that, and we're looking at ourselves, and we forget he's a lot higher than this place is. And uh, he's holier than we really realize he is. And therefore, we are, our expectation uh, before a holy God is minimal when it ought to be exalted. And that's what we see here in this man. Let me just read you a little bit about this king. King Uzziah was an amazing king. And in 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 16, we see some things. I want you to see how he... Uh, the things that were stated about him, how great he was. And I want you to notice also his downfall. First of all, in chapter, and we're going to look at, uh, you can turn there if you'd like. I'll give you a little bit of time. It says he was 16 years old in verse 3 when he began to reign. And he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also, Jecoliah of Jerusalem. 
And notice that verse 4 says, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father uh, Amaziah did. And he sought the Lord God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And here it says, And as long and it says, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. Now, how did he prosper? And God helped him against the Philistines, verse 7 says. And the Amorites gave gifts to Uzziah, in verse 8. And his name spread abroad even to the entering in of Egypt, for he strengthened himself exceedingly. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem, at the corner gates and at the valley gates and at the turning of the wall and fortified them. In verse 10, also he built towers in the desert and digged many wells and he had much cattle both in the low country and in the plains. Husband also in vine dressers in the mountains and in, and in camels he loved husbandry. Moreover, Uzziah had a host of fighting men that went out to war by bands. He was a good king because he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. God helped him have a very successful reign for 52 years without a defeat in battle. That's how good he was. You can see why Isaiah kept his eyes on him and had confidence in him. He was industrious. He built up Judah. And in verse 13, we said he, militarily he fortified her cities. He invented great strategic weapons to defend them. He became renowned because of his strength. Two times in this chapter, it said, and his name spread abroad. Look at verse 15. It says, and he made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers uh, upon the bulwarks to shoot arrows and great stones withal. And his name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. It's amazing. I think, he had, I think he had instruments of war that would throw rocks, sling them like mortars. I think he had, had inventions where he could shoot multiple arrows at one time off the wall. I mean, the guy was a military genius in protecting the Jewish people. And they were really, really confident in him. But at the pinnacle of his power, verse 16, he did something that destroyed his life and destroyed his fame. Verse 16, But when he was strong, here it is, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. He entered into the priesthood, and he was not of the lineage of Aaron. He was not qualified. And Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him fourscore, that's eighty priests of the Lord, that were valiant men. And they withstood Uzziah the king. Did they have conviction? The preacher said, you can't do this, king. I mean, there's a separation here between the civic duties and the spiritual duties. He said, you can't do this. You're in the wrong place. You can't, you can't offer incense on the altar. And said unto him, it is a, appertaineth not unto thee. He said, you're not a priest. Uzziah to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed, neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. He said, those priests said, King, get out of here. 
This is not your job. Now, the king didn't like that because the king was successful. And he was lifted up in pride because of his success. Then Uzziah was wroth and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was wroth with the priest, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. Okay, he became an unclean person because he became a leper. He said, why did God do that to a man who was such, such a success? Let me just tell you something, folks. There's some things that God will not share with you, and that is his glory. He will not share his glory. Listen, God dethroned the king because he illustrated the danger of minimizing the holiness of God. And Isaiah witnessed that. This king who he honored and was so confident in. He was a distraction to Isaiah, and God removed him. Now, the question I want to ask you is this, and the first point I've elaborated on and given you a lot of scriptural support because I think it's foundational to the surrender here. The removal of the distraction was important. Now, I want to ask you, what king... What king is enthroned in your life blurring your vision of God's holiness? What is it? What is blurring your vision of God's holiness? Because that, is, that, will, that, whole, that view of God has everything to do with how surrendered you are to that God. Is it a position? Are you blinded by your position? Are you blinded by your own pride, prestige? Are you blinded... Uh, because you think you have a certain amount of security and protection. Is it your portfolio? Okay, is it your retirement plan? All those things are good. It's just like money. You know, money is a, is a lousy master. It's a great servant. Nothing wrong with money. I mean, I, I treat it like a, a, a wrench in my toolbox when I need it. It's just, it's just part of life. You know, it's just part of functioning. It's not what you own. It's what owns you. And what owns you, if it's not a holy God, will blur your vision. And God may need to remove that play toy you have. Okay? So, number one, God's lesson on holiness that leads to surrender is the removal of the king. What king does God have to dethrone in your life for you to get to that place? Number two, the response of the seraphims. I want you to see the response of the seraphims. You go back to Isaiah chapter 6, and you'll notice those seraphims covered their face with two wings, they covered their feet with two wings, and they flew with two wings. That's an unusual-looking creature. And they cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Did you hear that? Hang on to that. It, the whole earth is full of his glory. You know where, <laughs> do you know where uh, Isaiah thought the glory of the Lord resided only? The temple. Limited to a place. Limited to a place. That's interesting. You see, God gave Isaiah a heavenly demonstration. And the question we need to ask is why did Isaiah need this vision? Well, you know, he needed to be surrendered. He thought he was and he wasn't. But if you don't know that, let me give you two reasons why he needed the vision. Number one, 
his estimate of God's holiness was limited to a place, Mm -hmm. a temple. He thought that's the only place you could go and meet with God. He limited God to just a place. It's kind of like a Christian that has a behavior when they come to church, and they're totally different when they go to work. They limit God to a place. And listen, uh, everywhere you step is holy ground. We need to understand that. He limited God to the mercy seat. Verse 3, the cherubim said this, the whole earth is full of his glory. <laughs> the whole earth is full of his glory. Man, that, here he is exalted to a throne. Now, don't you know Isaiah used to come in because I'm sure uh, Uzziah liked Isaiah. I mean, things were going good. They were well protected. He was a king. He was on top of things. He was an inventor of things. He said, we're going to do this. We're going to do this to protect us. We're, we're, you're, we're safe. You're safe under my rule. And Isaiah kind of kicked back and said, I'm his prophet. We got, we got this thing, man. We got this thing. I mean, look at that wall. I mean, there's no way in the world. Look, three, if you read the, the chapter, I didn't read it all. They had 300 and 7,500 valiant soldiers that were equipped with spears and everything. They were ready. They had special forces. I mean, and so, uh, you know, I'm sure that, uh, that uh, this idea of walking into a throne and seeing the king on a throne, Uzziah dies. He's a leper. He dies. God takes him out. And you know what Isaiah does? He goes to church or he goes to the temple. He walks in and he's looking down here for God. He says, man, my king's gone, man. Uh, and he walks in looking for God and all of a sudden he looks up. Yeah. He sees this robe hanging down yeah. into the temple. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid that our worship doesn't touch the hem of his garment. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. Because he's holier than we realize he is. We have made him a human Jehovah. When I was playing football at East Tennessee State, the band was playing Jesus Christ Superstar. That goes way back. A fellow by the name of Eberon Rice did this, uh, this uh, thing about Jesus Christ and, 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 and left him on a cross and, and made him a lover of Mary Magdalene and made him weak. And what they did is try to humanize Christ. And bring him down to man. Yes, he was God and man, but he was not just a man. In Mary Magdalene, one of the phrases, she's a man, he's a man, he's a man, just a man. And I've had so many men before. That's one of the phrases in the, the rock opera. It was beautiful music, but if you know the, 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 uh, the, the, the words to it and the understanding of what they were doing, it was not very good. And so what we, he, he, we bring him down to our level, and he's, he's not, he's not the, a human Jehovah. And so um, Isaiah had never experienced a true reaction to God's holiness, and he got it that day. But second reason why he needed this vision was not only that his estimate of God's holiness was limited to a place, but his estimate of himself was inflated. It's a funny thing. When a man doesn't see God as he is, he'll always miscalculate what he is. Isn't that interesting? You know what I find? You know what I find very difficult, Pastor? 
Every once in a while I come in contact with someone, maybe they'll come to our church. Someone who thinks they're more spiritual than they really are. You know? That's, that's hard to deal with. You know what I mean? It's really hard to deal with. Now, I'm not saying people aren't spiritual. I'm just saying sometimes there's some people come across pious, and they're not pious at all. By the way, if you try to be pious, you probably aren't. It's kind of like um, uh, humility. Saying, as soon as you claim it, you've lost it. Mm-hmm. We know I found out about humble people. They don't know they're humble. I used to have a principal in the Eastern Shore of my first church. His name was John Henry from West Virginia. And he would get to talking about some good old boy that you know, didn't have any education. He said, but you know, Brother God, he's the humblest man. They pronounce it that way too, humble. He said, the humblest man I ever met in my life. And the whole time John's talking, I'm thinking, no, John Henry, you are the humblest man. I know. <laughs> he didn't know he was, but he was very, very humble. And he's always talking. He said, that's the humblest man I've ever seen. He didn't know it. And uh, that's so refreshing today. But the bottom line is, Bottom line is, he estimate, his estimate of himself was inflating. He had just judged Israel's sin by pronouncing six woes or judgments upon them. Like so many of us, he judged himself by the failures of others. Did you hear me? Judged himself by the failures of others. And of course, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse uh, 12, he said, you dare not. You dare not judge yourself by yourself, okay? You know, you, but you judging yourself by yourself are not wise. In other words, if you go, it's kind of like a person going down to morgue to, and looking at a cadaver to decide whether they're alive or not. I mean, really. You know, you don't, you don't go down and judge yourself whether you're alive down at a, at a, at a, a, a funeral home with a bunch of cadavers. It, you must look at Jesus if we start looking at each other, we're going to fall far short. And you know what he was doing? Isaiah was looking at the king. That was his security. And he wasn't looking at the Lord. Thirdly, first of all, removal of the king. The distraction in his life. The response of the seraphims. He saw himself as he really was when he saw God as he really was. And then number Number three, repentance of the prophet. Notice the repentance. After pronouncing six woes, he has this heavenly vision of the holiness of God, and here's what he says. Then said I, the seventh woe was for himself. Judgment on me, woe is me, for I am undone. (laughs) He said, I'm emptied of self. He said, all of my courage, all of my self uh, confidence is gone. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the King. <laughs> the Lord, all capitals, of host. He repented. He experienced conviction. I have unclean lips. He expressed his confession. There's a process that is necessary for all who will surrender to serve. Here's what it is. Visualization. Isaiah saw the Lord. The reason we don't see him as clearly as we ought to is we don't get in our Bibles. A lot of times, the only time we get something from God is when the preacher gives us something on Sunday. 
So we're getting a one or two meals a day, and we're snacking during the week. We ought to be getting something from God's Word every day, every day, finding a message that we're God preached to. You don't have to read all the Bible at one time, but get something every day from God. Every day, every day. Just like you feed uh, from the refrigerator, you need to go to your Bible. So after this visualization, there was a vision of God that was introspection. That's when you take a hard look inside and say, am I where I ought to be? And that's what he did. He saw, when he, Isaiah saw the Lord, the next step was he saw himself. And he came to a verdict. We have a vision, then we have a verdict. And the verdict is that I am unclean. And after that, you got it, there's purification. There's visualization, there is introspection, and then there is purification. That was the next step. And that takes us to the next thing. Regeneration from the altar. Look at verses 6 and 7. Now I'm going to explain this to you. Then flew one, after he confessed, then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the, with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth. He has unclean lips, he touched his lips. And said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity, that's your sin, is taken away, and thy sins purged. Hold it. Isn't this a prophet of God? <laughs> Why does he need to be cleansed? Because he did not see God as holy as he really was. Therefore, he didn't see himself as he did, as he should. Therefore, he was not totally surrendered to what God had called him to do. Now, in the Old Testament economy, the fire was to ever be burning in the temple. There were 24 shifts of priests that kept that fire burning and kept that sacrifice on that altar. And when I say shifts, they were called courses. And they would come in and they would make sure that that offering was sacrificed and there was a continual sacrifice that fire ever burned. It'd be like you going out in your yard and putting on some steaks on your grill with a charcoal grill and cooking them, having your neighbors come over and keeping it going and keeping it going and keeping Then the next day somebody else comes along and keeps it going, offers another daily sacrifice and keeps it going, keeps going. You know why we had, they had to do that? Because the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ had not been made. Right. Hebrews chapter 7 says, for they were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. They died and another brother of Aaron had to take over. But this man has an eternal or continual priesthood because he what? Lives forever. And he's able to save us to the uttermost to come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Uh, for by one offering... Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says, For by one offering hath he perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wow. Once. And so that continual offering had to be kept. The fire had to ever be burning. And so when that seraphim, after Isaiah confessed his uncleanness along with the people that he was ministering to and pronouncing judgment on, flew over and took that coal off the altar. It was a part of that daily sacrifice. And he came over and he touched his lips. 
and purged him and cleansed him of his sins. And folks, until we're clean, we're not ready to be used of God. And until we see ourselves as we are, we're not going to confess our sins. And we're not going to surrender. And we're never going to be, come to that place until we see him as high and lifted up. And realize that he's not limited to a place. But the whole earth is full of his glory. The application. Isaiah did not cleanse himself, folks. <laughs> and you can't cleanse yourself. But I can tell you where you can get cleansing. Okay? I can tell you, when, and I can tell you that there need not be any more temporary sacrifices. The once for all sacrifice was sufficient. And all you have to do is come before him and confess like Isaiah did. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why we send missionaries, folks, because that is viable today. It's viable in Togo, Africa. It's viable in uh, Quebecistan and different places. It's, 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 it's viable in Canada. It's viable everywhere. Isaiah's experience is replayed over and over again in our lives. We try to serve without a realistic view of God. He is holier than we can imagine. And then we try to serve God without a realistic view of ourselves. We are not as clean as we think we are. I had a man one time, his dad was in our church, and I was witness to him on his steps. He's a good big hunter, friend of mine. Always kind of brings me some mounts to put up when we do our beast feast. And I said, hey, Frank, can you bring some of them animals you killed? The guy's killed animals. I mean, he's got all kinds of animals. And I was witnessing to him. He said, and he was standing. I'll never forget it. He said, well, I'm, he said, uh, he said I, I'm, not, I'm not that bad. And I looked at him. I said, Frank, you're not as good as you think you are. Yeah. He said, I'm not a bad person. I said, you're not as good as you think you are. And that's our problem. We're not as good as we think we are. A person, here, get this now, a person consumed with his own greatness will cease to fear God. That's what's wrong with Hollywood. They want to be gods. Didn't you know that? And they're the ones influencing our children. They all want to be little gods. They want to be worshipped. And then you'll minimize the holiness of God. That's what happens. We attempt to do the work of God half committed like Isaiah. He thought he was prepared. He wasn't even surrendered. That's why it's such a great passage for us. Isaiah wasn't surrendered. Man, wrote 66 chapters. More New Testament truth in the book of Isaiah than any other Old Testament prophet. It's called the, 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 the gospel of the Old Testament. Only when Isaiah came to this point was God ready to extend the call. And here's the next point. Then we have the recruitment of the Lord. At that point, the Lord says, now you're ready. And as soon as, as, soon as he's cleansed, verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Not me, for us. And only then was Isaiah ready to surrender. And here we have, he's been operating as a prophet and he's not surrendered. That's our problem. We know how to do church. We know, we know how to connect the dots. 
We know how to behave. Are we surrendered? Are we surrendered? And that's what we need today, folks. And then we see the res- he was resigned to ministry. He said, here am I. Send me. He was ready. And you say, why preach this in a mission conference? I believe every believer has to be surrendered. I believe we ought to write out a blank check. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about our lives. And you say, Lord, fill it in. Years ago, I flew to Minneapolis, Minnesota to preach a message before my nephew, my sister's son, who got married at Northwestern in the chapel there where Billy Graham used to preach. He said, we, just, we don't want you to do the funeral. His pastor's going to do it. He said, but we want you to preach. It's the only, only wedding I ever had someone say. It's amazing. Afterwards, a lady came up to me and said, I trust the Christ. I was, I was astounded, you know. But uh, I'll never forget, my, wife, my sister and her husband wanted to sell their business. They had a very good business in Old Wine, Iowa. They were both saved, members of a good independent Baptist church there. They wanted to go in full-time service. They were going to sell their business, and they, they had made a covenant with God. If you sell our business, we'll go work for Wycliffe. This guy was a craftsman. He's good with glass. And they didn't realize Wycliffe was not the place to go work at this time, maybe at one time, all right? Uh, and, and I don't want to get into the separation on that, but they, you know, that's about all they could do is make planes right now as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, I, uh, I, they, they said, we're going to get some rooms. We want you to stay over a day. We want to talk to you about, we want to talk to you about what's going on. And they were a little frustrated. They said, we can't sell our business. They said, we've told God that if he would sell our business, we'd go work for Wycliffe. I said, well, first of all, let me say, I don't think you ought to go work for Wycliffe. And I told them why. I said, I'm not sure that's where you want to go. And they said, well, what? I said, well, let me ask you. I said, Sarah, you got a degree in education. Would you work in a Christian school? Rick, you're a businessman. You got a degree in business. I said, you're, you, you've been successful. Would you be a business manager for a church? I said, would you go and work for a mission board and work there uh, in the office and help the missionaries get their funds and whatever, all the business to take care of? Would you go work in a business manager, as business manager in a college somewhere? And I just threw out the name of Pensacola Christian College. I just, you know, it's just one of those colleges some of our kids go to. And I knew they, were, they, they hire a lot of people. And I thought, man, they probably have a big business department. And sir, you could work in education some way. And, and, they, and I said, let me ask you this. This is what I asked them. I said, are you surrendered? And they looked, they said, well, yeah, we're selling our business and we're willing to go work for what? I said, wait a minute. I said, you've said, God, we're going to put you in a corner now. If you sell our business, we will go here. I said, really? I said, would you go work in some of the places I just said if God said, this is where I want you to go? And I remember Sarah, my older sister, looked at Rick, her husband, and she said, I guess we're not surrendered. I said, I think maybe you ought to give God a blank check and say, God, we'll serve you anywhere you want us to go with the abilities you've given us. 
And you know, within a month, they'd sold their business. They spent seven years at Pensacola Christian College. Rick, Dr. Horton jumped over everyone on his staff because Rick was such a team player and made him, put him in charge of his pet project, which was setting up 300 Christian radio stations. And he was the, he literally was the project manager for that whole thing. He did all the research for that. And my sister became the homeschool secretary at Pensacola for that seven years. They never got 300 because they ran out of frequencies. They got 60 stations, but and now they're back in Iowa and they are retired. But what I, the illustration is personal to me. They were not surrendered. They're good people willing to do, but they weren't surrendered because they said, God, we'll do this if you'll do this. And God can do what he wants to do with me. I remember in the Appalachian Mountains, I was riding with a guy named Hal Harmon, and I, I knew God was working on me. I wasn't going to be a football coach. I wanted to be, that's what I wanted to do bad. I had a degree in health and physical education, and I knew God was calling me to preach or into full-time Christian service. And I was sitting there in that car listening to the King is Coming while he was going up into the mountains to a log cabin uh, where a doctor would barter with people and take a bushel of sweet potatoes uh, to give him some penicillin, and he would go up there and supply uh, pharmaceutical things for him. He worked for Upjohn at the time. And Hal Harmon would, would, was, a, was a Christian. He became like a, a big brother to me as a young Christian in a state college and not saved very long. And I'll never forget saying, God, you can have my life. No strings attached. Not if you do this, but you can have my life. And I got news for you folks. He'll take it. He will take it and he'll use it. And I wouldn't trade a moment of what God's done in my life and in my family's life for one moment on a football gridiron and a winning record. Wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Until he saw God as holy, he did not see his condition. How can we serve a holy God with unclean lips? That's the question. He was doing the work of God without surrender to God. Church member, does that describe you? There is a lot of unholy service that is pawned off as legitimate in our churches. God would call more people into missions if we knew who was doing the calling. You had to see him as he is. And we were in a spiritual position to hear. We'll never stand in awe of God while distracted by the world. This king was a distraction. He sinned greatly and God moved him so the man of God could really be surrendered and really answer to the call that God had called him to. It was while immersed in worship and the work that Isaiah saw the Lord in all his glory. Hey, in all his holiness, he went to church. Good place to go when you lose your hero. His hero was dead. His Josiah died. I had a young preacher tell me not too long ago. He said, you know, I was following a man, but my King Uzziah died. And I said, I know exactly what you're talking about. And now he's serving God like nobody's business in the ministry because he's not just following the man. We've got too many people that put people on a pedestal and we worship men. And I could name some names for you, but I won't do it because I might hurt somebody's feelings. And God's had to take them to heaven for some people to wake up. 
that we've been worshiping God at the hem of His garment because we've got our eyes on men. And I got news for you, folks. We're never going to be surrendered to missions, to give, to go, until we see Him high and lifted up. And realize He's not limited to just one place. But God can save people in Minster, Ohio today. He can still save people. He can save Catholics that are ingrained, born that way, raised that way. I've got a whole extended family in my church that were saved out of Catholicism and serving God. It can happen here, and I'll tell you what, it can happen in Togo, Africa, but it won't unless you're surrendered to send somebody. And while we're winning people here, folks, we've got to go around the corner or we'll never go around the world. And I'm saying it all boils down our surrender in relationship to God's holiness. I'll tell you what, folks. I'll tell you why I'm still preaching and I'm going to keep on until I die. Because he's holy. And he deserves more than I can give him. Would you bow for prayer?